whole. My servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a dry root out of the ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut out from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we come to this uh, beautiful and yet troubling text, and we pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Lord, it is particularly easy in the culture in which we live and in the culture of American evangelicalism to miss what's here. Father, forgive us for the ways in which we exchange the theology of glory for the theology of the cross. Father, drive us to the cross. Drive us to the truth of this text. Give us ears to hear. For we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1995, Bruce Springsteen gathered the E Street Band to record four tracks for his upcoming Greatest Hits album. For diehard Springsteen fans, like, I don't know, a 25-year-old recently married seminary student living in Louisville, Kentucky, 
This was indeed a momentous occasion. Bruce had not recorded with his band since the Born in the USA album of 1984, and he had not toured with them since the mid-1980s. Now, there was a documentary made when the group gathered in New York City to record these four tracks. Max Weinberg, Gary Talent, Roy Bitten, Miami Steve Van Zandt, Nils, Le Nils Lofgren, the late Danny Federici, and of course, the big man himself, the late great Clarence Clemens, were playing together in the studio for the first time in over a decade. Well, as they sat down and began recording their first track, longtime Springsteen producer John Landau stopped the legendary band and played back for them the first verse that they had just laid down. They listened, and then the boss stopped and turned around and said to his band, we lost the melody. When you lose the melody, you're done for. Our text for this morning gives us the melody of God's redemptive work. It tells us exactly how God accomplishes our salvation. And like the E Street Band, we cannot lose our grip on the melody. Friends, if we lose this melody, we're done for. Now, in your bulletin, you see something there called the big idea. And the big idea, or if you like, the melodic line for our passage this morning is this. Jesus is the servant whose suffering accomplishes our salvation. Jesus is the servant whose suffering accomplishes our salvation. Four points we would make this morning. The first one is this. We need to appreciate the craftsmanship. We need to appreciate the craftsmanship. This particular passage of scripture is divided into five stanzas. It is a poem, if you would. And in this poem, the poem consists of couplets. It consists of uh, sections that go together. Now, if you're wondering what a chiasm is, a chiasm is, think of the letter X, and then cut it in half so that you basically have a sort of less than or greater than symbol. And in that, you have these couplets that go together. And so the first couplet would be uh, 52 verses 13 to 15, and then 53 verses 10 to 12. The second couplet is 53, 1 to 3. And then in the very middle, you have the heart of what it is that Isaiah is trying to tell us. That comes in Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 to 6. So think of it this way. The melody of the melody of God's redemptive work is found within Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 through 6. Now, why is it that we need to give attention to this kind of craftsmanship? Why should we care that Isaiah is writing a chiastic poem that has uh, three couplets and five stanzas? Unless you're some kind of Bible nerd or some sort of theology geek, why would you even care about this? Well, friends, we want to give attention to the craftsmanship because we understand that the structure with which the author writes reveals the emphasis. If we want to make sure that we don't miss the heart of the matter, we have to pay attention to how Isaiah has crafted this particular poem. 
Now, please recall that when Isaiah was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he couldn't go to his computer, change the font, turn it into 14-point font, uh, like I did with lots of papers in college. He can't use bold or italics. He can't underline it to make sure that we don't miss it. And so he has to find another way to grab our attention. Isaiah uses structure to point our attention to verses 4 through 6. That is the very heart of the gospel. So why then would Isaiah write in this way? Why does he write in a way that's totally foreign to how you and I access information? Well, we need to understand that not only did Isaiah not have access to a computer and to word processing programs like we do, but we also need to understand that the Bible treats us very differently than the culture in which we live treats people. The Bible treats us as whole persons. We're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. In other words, the Bible actually thinks that we are thinking people. And it tells us from beginning to end that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Our culture treats us as consumers. Not as those who are fearfully and wonderfully made, not as those who think, but rather as consumers. And so the stuff that we read in our culture is intentionally designed to simply tell us what we need to know so that we can function well. Or it's designed to entertain us. After all, we are those who consume entertainment. I was reminded of this yesterday. We were having internet problems at home, and so Amy went and found, uh, we, we kept the, the instructions for, from our internet provider, uh, and then to use our modem and how you have to pair it. And basically, all it gives you is it gives you a sort of troubleshooting checklist. So if one works, then go to two, two, go to three. So it's, they basically want to make sure that you can troubleshoot to, make, to ensure that the thing you've paid for is going to work like it's supposed to. Well, friends, a lot of what we read and a lot of what we come across in our culture is that kind of writing. It's that kind of literature. Either tell me what I need to know or entertain me. Well, when Isaiah writes to us about the glories of the gospel, he does so with a very different understanding of what it means to be human. We are far more than consumers. We are far more than people who have certain information we need to know to function properly. And we're far more than just entities to be entertained. No, we're called, as we already confessed this morning, to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And so the Bible actually acts like we can think. The Bible actually acts like the things that it's calling us to are ultimate and meaningful, and they might be things that we would want to give our careful time and thought and attention to. And so we need to appreciate the craftsmanship, because in the craftsmanship, we get right to the very heart 
of the matter of the gospel. So what is it? What are those five chiastic stanzas? What are they telling us? Well, that first couplet that comes in 52 verses 13 to 15 and then in verses 53 verses 10 to 12, so the very beginning and then the very end of our passage, it tells us about this servant who's going to have victory through suffering. The servant who's going to have victory through suffering. Now, what's interesting is that Isaiah, in introducing us to the servant, he's shrouded in mystery and paradox. Nowhere in Isaiah chapter 52 or 53 does Isaiah say, oh yeah, by the way, this person I'm talking about is Jesus. But if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, you know exactly who he's talking about. No, instead he goes through and he speaks of my servant. And he says he and him and uses it repeatedly. And it's through the events that the servant is going to go through that we learn the identity of this chosen servant. That's the mystery. Here's the paradox. The paradox is that Isaiah takes things that we normally wouldn't think would go together and yet puts them together. Look again at this first couplet. He says that his servant will be high and lifted up, that he will be exalted. In 53 verses 10 to 12, he says that the will of the Lord is going to prosper in his hand. In other words, the servant is going to succeed where the rest of us fail. The servant is going to be exalted by God himself. The servant is going to do things that none of us can do. He's going to do not just the will of the Lord perfectly, but the will of the Lord is actually going to prosper in the hands of this servant. In other words, the servant is going to succeed where our first parents and you and I fail repeatedly. And yet, we are also told that this servant will be marred beyond recognition, that he will be crushed, that he will be put to grief, that he will experience an anguish of soul that defies explanation. This servant is both high and lifted up and crushed, and put to grief. That's the paradox. So friends, when we come to the Gospels, and we read about the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus, let's understand that both things must exist as we read about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus must be the one who is high and lifted up. He must be the one who is exalted. He must be the one who sees the will of the Lord prosper in his hand. And yet, when we come to the story of his passion, or when we come to the stories in which the disciples yet again completely miss the point, we have to understand that Jesus, the exalted one, is also the one who is put to grief. As we sang, he is the man of sorrows. What a name for the Son of God who came.
So let's understand then this morning, if our understanding of Jesus, of the personal work of Jesus Christ, is not paradoxical in this way, then it's wrong. Now, since as Christians we're called to be Jesus followers, it also means that if our understanding of the Christian life is not paradoxical, it's also wrong. You're saying, well, what, Pastor, what do you mean by that? Well, Martin Luther is really helpful on this point. Luther distinguished between the theology of glory over and against the theology of the cross. And Luther reminds us that in this life, what we need to exist day to day is the theology of the cross. That as the Lord Jesus suffered, so also you and I understand we're going to suffer. Unlike Jesus, though, I suffer for my own sin. I suffer for my own stupidity. I suffer for my own willfulness, and I suspect you do as well. Jesus, however, Isaiah makes very clear, Jesus suffers not for his own sin, but for the sins of others. Now, there is coming a day in which we will understand this theology of glory. There is coming a day in which we will indeed be like Jesus, because we will see him face to face. But friends, that day is not now. Luther is very clear. We must go through the theology of the cross in order to gain the theology of glory. We don't get the theology of glory until we see Jesus face to face. Keep your finger in Isaiah 52 and 53 and turn with me, if you would, uh, towards the back of your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 4. It can be found on page 1,222 in your pew Bible. 1 Peter chapter 4. And in verses 12 and 13, Peter helpfully uh, makes us, he helps us make sense of this theology of the cross and then the theology of glory. Here's what he says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice, insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Now, don't miss what Peter's saying. What are we going to get in this life? Suffering. Fiery trial. By the way, Peter tells us we're supposed to act exactly the opposite of what we always do. We always are shocked and surprised and dismayed when this comes our way. We always throw up our hands and be like, God, what the heck's going on here? Seriously, I'm doing everything right. Dude, help me out a little bit here. We're stunned by it. Peter says, no, you shouldn't be. There's nothing strange happening to you. But instead, when that happens, you should rejoice. Why? Because if you have the theology of the cross now, you will get the theology of glory later. Look at verse 13. Rejoice. For insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Don't miss the order, please. A theology of suffering, now. A theology of the cross, now. 
will become one day a theology of glory. But we won't get that until we see him face to face. This is one of the things the American church gets horribly, horribly wrong. We seem to think that it's God's job to give us our best life now. And we seem to forget on a fairly regular basis, because again, we think as consumers and not as those who are fearfully and wonderfully made, we seem to forget that eternity is a bit longer than the 80 or 90 years we may be blessed with on this particular earth. And so we fuss, and we gripe, and we complain, and we self-medicate, and we shake our fist at God as though somehow he has forgotten what he's doing. No, friends, the way of Jesus is the way of Jesus' followers. Yes, we will partake in the glory that will be revealed in the Lord Jesus, but only after we have gone through the suffering and the fiery trials the Bible tells us about. Thirdly, we see the real physical suffering of the Lord Jesus. We see the real physical suffering of the Lord Jesus. There's a wonderful book written by a Puritan called The Sinfulness of Sin. Seems like a rather redundant title, but he's pointing out that sin is not a small thing. Sin is not a trifling thing. And it has within it a rather extended meditation on this particular couplet of verses. See, when we understand the suffering for sin that Jesus goes through, and when we understand that there is a real penalty for sin, and that Jesus is likened to a sacrificial lamb, it changes how we think about our sin and how we think about our rebellion. From the very beginning, from Genesis 3 on, there is always a blood offering for sin. There is no atonement for sin any other way. Jesus then comes to earth, takes on a body, so that he has a body that can be broken, and so he will have blood that can be shed. Now, as we think about this kind of real physical suffering that Jesus goes through, and as we understand the very clear words of this text, that it is God's will that this would be done, that it was God himself, as we read in chapter 53, verse 1, this is the arm of the Lord that is being revealed. God is showing his might and his power and his glory through the suffering of his son. Now let's stop for just a minute and think about what that tells us about things like the love of God. That God is, by very definition, love. 
And so he sends his servant into the world to be despised and rejected. He sends his servant into the world to be oppressed and afflicted. He sends his servant into the world to be taken away by oppression and judgment. Think about what that means about the depth and the cost and the sinfulness of our sin. Friends, again, Jesus did not suffer and die because of his own sin. No, he did so because of our sin. We'll see that clearly in verses 4 to 6. On top of that, think about what it says about the worth of human beings. Again, we're not mere consumers. We're not the product of time and chance. We're not merely beings that need to be entertained or provided for. Now, friends, our Heavenly Father loves us to the point and values us to the point that for the sake of the glory of His name, He sent His Son to be the blood offering for you and for me. I love that it's a newer hymn, See How He Loves Us. Lamb of God, crucified, suffered alone, dying He saved us, laid within a sinner's grave, Ever he lives, risen to raise us. See how he loves us. When we focus on the real physical suffering of the Lord Jesus, I hope it drives us to a new uh, reflection and a new appreciation on how deep and real and wide and limitless is the Father's love for those he has created. Fourthly and finally, we see salvation accomplished. We see salvation accomplished. Verses 4 through 6. By the way, if you're a Bible circler or a Bible underliner, uh, you can do much worse than to underline or to even memorize verses 4 to 6 in Isaiah chapter 53. This is the gospel in three verses. You want to understand what, if you want to understand what the whole fuss is about the entire book, here it is. Chapter 53 of Isaiah, verses 4 through 6. Now, let's look at how it starts. I love the word with which it starts. It doesn't say, in theory. It doesn't say, maybe. It doesn't say, possibly. Friends, what does it say? Surely. Surely. When I went to seminary, there was a theology professor who was quickly asked to resign, and she thought that Isaiah chapter 52 and Isaiah chapter 53, that these were, this was evidence basically of kind of a divine child abuse, that God was certainly misguided in sending his son to suffer, or she would posit perhaps God wanted a different outcome. God would have liked for the thing to look very different than it did, but he started things in in motion and it just got out of hand. There are also those who would say that the the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, or at least the death of Jesus, was all a great misunderstanding. Jesus, uh, to quote the old song from from the 70s, Jesus fought the law and the law won. Well, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4, will allow none of that foolishness or blasphemous nonsense. 
Surely he has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Do not miss how intensely personal verses 4 to 6 is. Our griefs, our sorrows, we esteemed him. Our transgressions, our iniquities, he brought us peace. We are healed. We have gone astray. We have turned. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Loved ones, this is not salvation in theory. This is salvation accomplished to you and to me. The Lord has laid on him our iniquity. This is God's plan A. Surely he has done this. There is no plan B. There is not another way to see your sin atoned for. There is not another way to attain to the theology of glory. No, salvation is accomplished only through Jesus bearing our grief and carrying our sorrow. Salvation is accomplished only through Jesus being wounded for our transgression and crushed for our iniquities. It's purchased only through the chastisement of Jesus and the stripes that were put on his back. Salvation is possible only because the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. There's a fancy term for that, a $3 term we call substitutionary atonement. Jesus took our place and took upon himself that which we deserved so that the, we could then receive from him what is rightfully and truly his. Uh, we've used this illustration before, but I find it to be really helpful. And in this week, as I was thinking about this text, it's, it's the simplest way I've ever thought of, or I haven't thought of, the simplest way I've ever seen to describe and to explain substitutionary atonement. Suppose for a moment that the ceiling uh, above me is God, and this is me. Now, at this point, there's nothing between me and God, except when you add, and this is actually a biography of G.K. Chesterton, when you add my story. My story is full of sin, failing, what the Bible calls iniquities, transgressions, all the things that Isaiah chapter 53 speaks of, my grief, my sorrow, my transgression, my iniquities. That's what gets in the way of my relationship with God. Now, if I was the only person in the room, that would be a lot, but I'm not. There's your sin and your transgression, and then we just keep going, right? We keep going, and we keep going, and we keep going. That's the sin and transgression. That's what was laid upon the Lord Jesus. So I think now we understand why the Bible uses the word crushed in verse 5. He was crushed for our iniquities. Well, this is Jesus. And so what happens on the cross is that God takes my sin, your sin, the sin of all those who would believe, and he lays it on Jesus Christ. 
And Jesus is then crushed under the weight of our transgressions. He's crushed under the weight of our iniquities. But what's now in the way of my relationship with God? Nothing. Nothing. He laid on him our transgressions. He laid on him the iniquity of us all. Friends, that's the melody we cannot lose. We cannot lose the fact that Jesus, by his death, accomplished our salvation. Not potentially, not in theory, not possibly, but surely Jesus has accomplished our salvation. As we come to the table this morning, we are reminded of this wonderful melody that Jesus suffered that his body was broken and his blood was shed. We get to see a symbol of that. We get to touch a symbol of that. We get to smell and taste the symbol of the broken body and shed blood of the Lord Jesus. And as we come to the table, we do so under divine edict. We are called to come. We're called to remember. We are invited to do these things. Why? Because it was the will of God the Father that it should happen this way. And we are reminded of both the theology of the cross and the theology of glory. See, this little small table with a cheap polyester tablecloth from Kenya is one day going to be replaced with a banquet table that is so grand and so extravagant that it completely defies explanation. But not yet. Until then, we eat bread and we use three-buck chuck in a very humble way to remember that our salvation was accomplished through the broken body and the shed blood of the Lord Jesus. And God the Father, through His Son and through His Spirit, invites us to come and to partake and to have our sin forgiven. Let's not lose that melody. Let's pray. Father, thank You. Lord, we, we, we are utterly helpless and beyond hope apart from the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we thank you for the weight and the depth and the gravity and the praiseworthiness of what you have done in seeing our salvation accomplished. Father, thank you that you, in your word, you treat us not like consumers, but you treat us as those who were created for a divine purpose to know you and to have fellowship with you. That we would love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we would love our neighbor as ourselves. Father, would we, would we not lose sight of that beatific vision 
We're more than a mistake. We are more than consumers. Father, forgive us for the ways in which we have embraced a theology of glory over and against realizing the humbling and yet powerful truth of the theology of the cross. And we bless you. For we can only echo the words of the hymn writer, see how he loves us. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.